Pastor Jonathan and musicians, take your copy of the scripture out, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of Philippians. We've been going through Philippians on uh, Sunday mornings and looking at the theme of discovering true contentment and joy. And uh, I tell you what, coming to chapter 3, chapter 3 is usually one of the favorite texts in fact, the entire chapter, uh, one of the favorite texts that people uh, speak about when you read through the book of Philippians. And this morning we're going to look at the topic, understanding how to be right with God. Understanding how to be right with God. And so let me invite you to stand with me for, for the reading of God's word. And we'll begin in verse 1 and we'll read down through verse 11. Understanding how to be right with God. Paul says, finally, my brothers. Now, preachers love the way Paul says, finally, and then he just keeps right on going. You know, so we've got scriptural warrant for that. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out. For the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and understanding to your word. God, this is your word, and it is true. And Lord, as your Holy Spirit inspired it to be written, I pray now that he would illuminate our hearts and minds that we might understand it. Lord, may we clearly see today that we are not to put confidence in the flesh. The works of righteousness that we do may be the result of faith. It is to be the result of faith and salvation. But the works of righteousness that we do can never be the root or the cause of our salvation. And God, I pray that someone here today would understand that very clearly, and that you would transform them through the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, folks, the human memory is an amazing thing. It's remarkable. Christian professor John Mitchell on the West Coast at, at a Christian college in California was was famous for having memorized much of the Word of God. 
his students and the congregation was continually amazed by his memory. But you know, uh, Professor Mitchell said it was never his goal specifically just to memorize Scripture, although that's a wonderful goal. But he went on to describe how it had happened through the years. He said, every time I preach a message, preach a text, or teach, whatever text I'm teaching, I make it my practice at bare minimum to read through it at least 50 times. And I even read through it out loud. And so by doing this through the years, inadvertently, he knew huge portions of the Word of God by heart. Memory and repetition is an amazing thing. Again, it it can also work in the negative. For example, take the example of Ty Cobb who lived from 1886 to 1961. He's probably one of the top ten or so baseball players. He has the highest all-time batting average. An amazing 366. Best ever. He made many other players and team owners jealous. Shortly before his death, one writer, one biographer by the name of Al Stump, who really didn't like Ty Cobb very much, wrote a story that Ty Cobb was a racist and that he sharpened his cleats so that he could injure other players and that he had even murdered three people. Well, that narrative was picked up and repeated through the years. It was even repeated in in some form, a, a, a negative view of Ty Cobb, in the movie Field of Dreams, starring Kevin Costner. When they discussed Ty Cobb, it was a very negative discussion. Conventional wisdom for decades said that Ty Cobb was a tremendously talented player, but that he was a horrible horrible person. Trouble is, it was later discovered none of it was true. Cobb actually supported minority players in baseball. He also tried to get the league to dull cleats so that players would not be injured. And he was never guilty of killing anyone. Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's notorious propaganda minister, once famously said, if you tell a lie enough, often enough, and loud enough, and keep repeating the lie, people will eventually come to believe it. Folks, that statement seems very true in the case of Ty Cobb. Because of the lies of one writer that were picked up and repeated over and over and over again. Until it became a narrative that diminished Cobb's entire life. Repetition. You see, repetition can be used either for the good, in the case of Dr. Mitchell memorizing scripture, or it can be used in a case of bad, like with with Ty Cobb. Look at what Paul is doing here as he begins chapter 3. What does he say? Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you again. It's no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. Repetition. You know, folks, sometimes people, there are certain people always looking to hear something new and novel. But the Christian faith is not made up of doctrines that are new and novel. We serve a God who has given us the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we are to over and over again in our hearts and minds be reminded of these precious doctrines of the Christian faith. It is the old, old story repeated 
again and again. And you know Paul wasn't the only biblical writer who believed in this. Simon Peter and also Jude, as they were writing their various letters, talked about the importance of repetition, of writing the same things over and over again to their audiences. And that's what Paul is doing here. Folks, what we see in our text today is that we must continually be reminded as to where our true confidence rests. First of all, with me this morning, I want you to take note of the same lie. The same lie. Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Folks, I want you to see how these verses are just as contemporary to you and me today as they would have been for the Philippians. Now to understand what's going on here, to understand these verses in chapter 3, you need to understand a group that continually went in behind the Apostle Paul and would try to trouble the congregations that he had planted. They were known as the Judaizers. And they constantly caused grief and confusion in the church. Think with me a moment about the book of Acts. We know that the first preaching of the gospel went to the Jews. Peter on the day of Pentecost was preaching to Jews who had come in town for the festival of Pentecost. They'd come from all over the world And the Spirit of God uh, came upon the, the disciples. And then Peter stood up to explain what was going on. And he went through their history, their salvation history, and how God had sent them a Messiah, namely Jesus Christ. And the Bible says they were all convicted and said to Peter, What must we do? And he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that day, 3,000 souls were added to the church. But then Peter goes to the home of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, who is a Gentile. And he had his Gentile friends. A Gentile is anybody who is not a Jew. He had his Gentile friends gathered there to hear Simon Peter uh, sharing the plan of salvation and sharing about Jesus And the Gentiles were saved. And this caused quite a stir among the Jews. You see, many of the Jews thought to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew first. And then you had the the males had to be circumcised, the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham in the book of Genesis. They thought you had to do all of that first before you could become a Christian. Well, the church leaders met in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem conference, probably the most important church business conference in the history of the church. And what did they decide at the Jerusalem conference? That they were not going to put any burdens on the Gentiles. They were not going to add anything else to the good news about Jesus Christ. Nothing needs to be added to the gospel. We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ and nothing more. Human works are not to be added. Well, folks, the Jerusalem conference didn't settle it for everybody. And so the Judaizers continued to go in behind Paul and preach their message of circumcision and obeying all of the various Jewish laws and codes. And so they were essentially legalist they were false teachers they were promoting a Jesus plus something else salvation and you remember what Paul said about that to the Galatians he said if anybody comes to you 
preaching another gospel that is really not a gospel at all, let him be cursed or let him be anathema, some of the strongest language of condemnation anywhere to be found in the Bible. Well, folks, that's the background you need to understand when you come to Philippians chapter 3. Paul knew that already there were packs of wolves, religious wolves, traveling to Philippi to devour the flock, to preach their message of Jesus plus something else needed for salvation. They were coming there to attack the gospel. And Paul calls them dogs. It was obviously a term of derision that the Jews used against the Gentiles. And Paul's going to take their own vocabulary and he's going to turn it around and use it on them instead. You see, dogs in ancient times didn't have a good reputation. They weren't the cute little cuddly pets that you and I have today. A lot of times they would roam the streets in packs and they could be dangerous. Well, these Judaizers are religious scavengers. They're like dogs, and they're always looking for a morsel of truth here and a morsel of truth there, never coming to a knowledge of the truth. And Paul calls them dogs. Folks, they are actually evildoers because they were pointing people away from the sufficiency of, that we have in Jesus Christ. And they're mutilators of the flesh because they were preaching the necessity of circumcision. And so where is it they were putting their confidence? They were putting their confidence in the flesh. Folks, there is only one good work that takes the sinner to heaven. And that is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul says, if you want to play this game of human works, I can play that game too. And guess what? I'm going to beat you at your own game. I'm going to tell you what my resume is. If, if I wanted to get down in the mud with you and, and, and talk about reasons to put confidence in the flesh, let, let me share some things with you that I could talk to you about. He says, circumcise the eighth day. That was a sign of a true Jew. On the eighth day, the parents would take the boy to the temple. And he would be circumcised. Some of the Judaizers were proselytes to Judaism. And that meant they had probably just been circumcised in adulthood. Descendants of Ishmael were circumcised in their 13th year. But Paul says, hey, I, I, I'm a true Jew. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's the way Jews do it. He goes on to say of the tribe of Benjamin. That was the tribe from which Saul, the first king of Israel, came. It was one of the two tribes which remained faithful to David when the kingdom of Israel split between the northern and southern kingdom. It's also one of the tribes which formed the nucleus of, of the new Israel after they came back from the Babylonian captivity. And so what Paul is saying there, I'm definitely also from the right family, from the right tribe. And I can add to that even more, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Boy, you could look back through my genealogy, my great-grandparents and my grandparents and my parents and me, we're, we're, we're all Jews. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. What Paul is describing there in, in all of these phrases so far is what many Jews would have put their confidence in. Confidence in ritual and race. But Paul's not done yet. 
He says, touching the law, I, I was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were called the separated ones. Now, from reading our Gospels, you and I today have a very negative opinion of the Pharisees, and probably rightly so because of what they had ended up doing. But they developed during the time between the Old and the New Testament. That 400 silent years, they were anything but silent. Israel understood that uh, they had gone away, Judah had gone away into exile because they had broken the covenant. They had transgressed the law of God. And so these Pharisees were formed, they came up as a group and they said, we're going to be kind of like the religious police for our people and we're going to make sure that Jews follow the law of God so that never again will we experience something like we did in the exile when God punished us through the exile. And so, hey, a lot of people thought of them as kind of the good guys. They're keeping us on track, on track with God, religiously speaking. But then through the decades, they started adding their, their laws, their regulations to the law of God. And they turned Judaism into a burden to where... Jesus had to confront them all the time. You swallow camels and choke on gnats. Look at what you've done with God's law. You've made it a burden. They, they had made it a burden. But Paul again says, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. I was a rising star among them. Boy, you want to talk about the right church standing, if you will, temple standing, ecclesiastical authority? Boy, I had it. He goes on to say, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's describing how he lived out his Jewish faith. He's expressing what was once his confidence in the moral nature. And so whether it was race or ritual or ecclesiastical standing or morality, Paul felt that at one time he stood head and shoulders above the rest of the pack. And he's saying... So you want to talk about confidence in the flesh? Hey, I can play that game too. Folks, in summary, in a way, Paul is describing here what so much of humanity today trusts in. We all have things like, hey, I grew up in church, I'm... I'm a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Catholic. I've been baptized. I've been christened. I've been confirmed. I, I attend Mass. I've been to our church services, even go to revival services. I've never heard anybody. I keep the golden rule. I try to obey the Ten Commandments. And on and on it goes with people today. If you don't believe it, you witness this week to some of your lost friends and ask them if they think they're going to heaven and if they say yeah well tell me why chances are I've heard it so many times over and over again people will say well you know what I'm a, I'm a pretty good person I'm a good person what is that? it's confidence in the flesh confidence in human ability and when one puts their confidence in the flesh their confidence in the unmerited grace of God is diminished because you see you can't have both you can't have all of your confidence resting in Christ and then also your confidence resting in yourself it doesn't work that way one excludes the other And so what many people have done today is try to exchange their own ideas of righteousness for what God says in His Word. And let me ask you this, when you stand before Christ one day, do you want to stand there with your own plan of confidence in what you've done or do you want to stand there in the confidence of what He has done? 
Do you want to stand in your own righteousness or in the righteousness of Christ? I hope the question, the answer to the question is obvious. One of Satan's lies is to get people continuing today, down to the current day, to think somehow or another I can contribute to my own salvation. In some way or another, I've done something. I've felt a certain way. I've treated people a certain way. I've done something, keeping the commandments of God just right, doing everything just right, trying to live a good life. And God's going to look at me because of that and say, well done, come on in. It's one of Satan's lies that has continued through the centuries. It's the same old lie. Confidence in the flesh. Well, secondly with me today, I want you to see the simple truth. Beginning there in verse 7, Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And then the heart of the good news comes out in the next verses, in verses 8 and 9. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Folks, if you don't hear anything else in this sermon today, I want you to hear those words right there. The simple truth of the glorious gospel begins with a surrender of self. Look at what Paul says there in verse 7. I count as loss for the sake of Christ. A repudiation of self. Paul is relating here how he dies. He died to himself. It was not bad things that he needed to die to. It was even what the world would call good things. Paul had to lose his religion, in other words, in order to be saved. He's using the language of an accountant here, looking at his debit column and his credit column, and and now counts those things as in the lost column that people would have said belonged in, in the good column. The things on his spiritual balance sheet that before he would have boasted in were the very things that were actually keeping him from eternal life. He had to lose those things in order to gain. He's relating how in order to be saved he had to give up trusting in anything he had done. Anything on his resume. He had to tear it up. And throw it away. Paul was a good man by human standards. He was a religious man. And yet on the Damascus road that day. He realized that none of that would save him. Oh he didn't give up his Jewish bloodline of course. I mean he, he was what he was. He was a Jew. He only abandoned thinking that that heritage was going to save him in and of itself. It wasn't. And likewise, he had to give up good works. Now he had good works, but out of a different motive. Good works not as the root of salvation, but good works as the fruit of salvation. Folks, have you ever come to that realization? Have you ever come to the realization that the Christian life essentially begins with a funeral? Where you die to self. You come to the end of yourself. You come to the end of everything that you've done. And confess before God, like the, like the publican and the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee in Luke 18, he was proud. 
And the publican beat on his breast, would not even look up to God and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, he's the one who went home justified in the sight of God that day. Have you ever come to that point uh, of giving up everything that men would think you've got to do in order to be saved and say, God, I can't be saved by any of that. I lay it all down at the foot of the cross. Without Christ, I'm lost. You may resent comments like that because you've worked hard to be who you are. You've worked hard to accomplish what you've accomplished. But it's true, folks, by your own efforts and by everything that you and I are in the flesh, we would be lost. You may be well-educated. You may be financially secure. You may be well respected in the business community, but apart from Jesus Christ, you are lost. If you are outside of Christ, I don't care how many things you have on your spiritual resume, if you are outside of Jesus Christ, you are lost and you're on your way to an eternity without God. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 3? Now folks, I love the book of Romans. The book of Romans has been held through the years. It's basically the most complete system of theology that Paul lays out his systematic theology, if you will. But that's really not sort of the background or the circumstance of the book of Romans. Really what's hanging over the book of Romans is this whole debate in the ancient world, this whole division between Jew and Gentile. And some of that division's going on at the Roman church and Paul's hoping to go there and, and, and get them to help establish a base of operations so he can continue to go westward into Spain. But in the book of Romans, he, he lays out the gospel that he preaches. And so, yes, it's his theology laid out. But the whole point of the book of Romans, the whole thing hanging over the book of Romans is this division between Jew and Gentile. And what he's trying to show in the book of Romans is at the foot of the cross, the ground is equal. Jew and Gentile alike have to be saved in the same way, through Jesus. And he says in Romans 3, there are none who are righteous. And as though somebody wants to stand up and raise their hand, well, I'm pretty righteous. He repeats it, no, not even one. There are none who are righteous, none who seek after God. We're condemned, we're lost. And religious people, the verdict is the same. Religious people without Christ, you're lost. Somebody says, well, what must I do? Die to self, renounce any confidence in your ability to save yourself. Die to self, trust in Christ and Christ alone. Any thinking that would say, God owes me salvation. I'm a good person. I treat people fairly well. I'm honest. I deserve to go to heaven. Paul says any thinking like that is rubbish. It's garbage. Because that's the kind of thinking that keeps people from seeing their desperate need of Christ. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Not only is it a death to self, but it is a submission to Christ. 
Paul speaks of knowing Christ. He, he's not talking here of knowing Christ like you would know a historical figure, George Washington in the history books. He's talking about a personal knowledge, having a relationship with somebody. Christianity is all about knowing Christ and having a personal relationship with Him. He's the living Lord and we can know Him. Paul speaks here of gaining Christ, of being found in Him. Paul, he, he talks about the righteousness that is found in Christ and through faith in Him. Notice that he says it is the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's not from religion, it's not from human works or morality. God is the source of this righteousness. This afternoon, read the first four verses of Romans 10. Because Paul explains there, he, he says, You want to know why many of my countrymen, the Jews, are not saved even to this day? He said, Because in trying to establish their own righteousness, they have set aside the righteousness from God. Paul is glad to trade in his own righteousness. He said it's rubbish, it's dung, it's garbage. And he said, I threw all of that away and came to Christ and Christ alone. He's now learned that while before he had enough morality, to keep him out of trouble, he did not have enough righteousness to get him into heaven. And so he gladly trades in his righteousness for God's righteousness that's found in Christ. Is that something you're willing to do? It's a decisive moment in the human heart. When God opens your eyes and your mind and your heart, you, you understand. God opens your eyes to the fact. You understand. I can't save myself. I don't care how good I am, apart from Jesus Christ, how, how many commandments I've kept. I, I, don't care, I don't care how good I try to live every day. I don't care how good I, I treat my neighbor and I don't kick his dog and I do all the good. I don't care, you know, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go, go with girls who do. I don't care how much. God opens your eyes to your condition. And you humble yourself before God and come to Christ and Christ alone. It's, it's a decisive moment in somebody's heart. Oh, it, it sure, it's something that God may be working on you for weeks, months, even years. But th there's, there's that time when you count your righteousness as rubbish and you trade your righteousness in for God's righteousness in Christ and you come to Christ trusting Him and Him alone for salvation. Folks, I want you to think about what God did at the cross, how He put all of your sin on Christ. And He died, the Greek little preposition, hupair, in your place, in your stead. He died for you. He died your death. He suffered God's wrath against sin for you. And by His death, your debt to God was paid in full. And by His resurrection, you'll be raised from the dead. Likewise, you'll have eternal life because you're in Him and He didn't stay dead. Are you willing to turn from all the things you've ever trusted in that would save you and turn to Christ in Him alone? That's what salvation is all about. As I just pointed out in Romans, Romans 10, Paul writes about what the, what the Jews were doing and people are still trying to do today. Substitute 
their own righteousness. But we can't. Folks, do you understand being baptized? Whether you were baptized as an infant or an adult, baptism in in and of itself will not save you. Joining a church in and of itself does not save you. Giving an offering in an offering plate in and of itself does not save you. Do you understand what the Bible is telling us? I'm belaboring this point because people today still misunderstand it. 2,000 years later and we're still having to fight this same battle that people think, hey, I'm a good person, and based on good works, I can go to heaven. We still have to come up against that mentality even today. It's the same false gospel that the Judaizers were preaching. And if you hang on to a false gospel believing in your own righteousness, you know what's going to happen? You're going to miss out on God and you're going to miss out on heaven. You come God's way through Christ or you don't come at all. Somebody says, well, why be baptized then? It's an important profession of faith. Profession of faith in, in the form of a picture. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And you've been united with Him. It's not in order to be saved, but because you are saved, you're making a public profession of faith. That's what your baptism is. Somebody says, well, why join a church? If joining a church won't save you. Well, because when you're saved, the Bible says saved people are to cluster together in a church family. We're commanded. It's not a suggestion. It's in the imperative. It's a command in the Word of God that we find a local body of, of believers in Christ. We join ourselves to that local body of believers in Christ and we worship God and serve God together. It's what Christians do. It's not what lost people do in order to be saved. It's what Christians do because we have been saved. Lastly, I want you to see the satisfied life. I'll be quick here. The satisfied life. Look at what Paul says in verses 10 and 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain from the, the resurrection from the dead. What's Paul say the satisfied life is all about? First of all, he says it's about knowing Christ. It's been probably 30 years now since Paul had met Christ on the road to Damascus, and yet as one who already knows Christ, what's Paul say? I want to know Him still more. Boy, that's the secret to a satisfied life, isn't it? You're you're not satisfied where you are in your walk with Christ. You want to know more of Christ. Also, he points out knowing the power of his resurrection. I want you to think about Christ laying there in in a cold, damp tomb. His body had been placed on a stone shelf. His, His breath was gone. His limbs were motionless. His heart had stopped. He was dead. To make sure of this, a Roman soldier had thrust a a spear into his side and out poured blood and water mixed, showing he was dead. And the elements of the blood had even begun to separate. But then just before dawn on that first Easter morning, his eyes opened, life returned. The Son of God was raised from the dead. The power of God was at work. That's the same power Genesis 1 speaks of that God spoke and everything came into being. That's the resurrection power of Christ. It's the power that can change a drug addict. It's a power that can take a prodigal and make the prodigal go back to his heavenly father. It's the prodigal that can reach a child, a teenager, an adult man sitting in a church pew. It's God's power, his resurrection power. 
Lee Strobel, the case for Christ, also the case for creation, the case for faith. He's, he's an apologist. He gives a defense of the Christian faith. He was not always that way. He was an atheist. And his five-year-old little girl was scared of him. He would come home sometimes mad and kicking holes in walls and doing all kinds. She would have to hide from her daddy. And then five months after he was saved, his little girl went to his mama and said, Mama, I want the same Jesus in my life that's changed daddy. Can I have that same Jesus in my life that's changed daddy from the man that I was afraid of to the man that he is today? What is that? That is the resurrection power of Christ. And Paul says, I want to know that resurrection power of Christ in my life. It's the power that can convict a man to go back home and reconcile with his wife. It's the power that can, can call a person from a, a business career and, and convince them they need to go to the mission field. It's the power that can take a rabbi like Saul who becomes the Apostle Paul and that rabbi has changed, he's saved, he's a new man in Christ. It's the resurrection power of Christ. And if you're a Christian, you know about that. And Paul says he wants to continue to know this power. Paul calls it in Ephesians, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Thirty years after his conversion, Paul still wanted to know the great resurrection power. And then lastly, he says, I even want to share in the sufferings of Christ. Paul understood there, there's no crown without a cross. The empty tomb was preceded by the cross of Calvary. Folks, if we truly want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we will not be without hardship. We will not be without suffering. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But all through those sufferings, I've been told many times through the years, Pastor, Pastor, I wouldn't want to go through that again. If my life depended on it, I wouldn't want to go through that suffering again. But I'm so glad, Pastor, I went through it that one time. Because there was something about that suffering. There was something about that hardship. God was so sweet to me. God was so present and personal to me. I was covered in a blanket of peace like I'd never experienced before. Pastor, I wouldn't take anything for that suffering that I went through. You know what I'm talking about. Jim Elliott, the famous missionary, said he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He suffered, surrendered his life for the sake of the gospel and counted it an honor. Paul said, I want to know Christ. I want to keep knowing Him. I want to know Him more and more and more. I want to know Him more I'm not satisfied where I, I want to know Him more. I want to love Him more. I want to serve Him more. I want to walk with Him more in my life. I want to know His power in my life. And I even want to share in His sufferings if that's what it takes. Folks, that's the satisfied life. I'll tell you what the satisfied life is not found in. It's not found in trying to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. That's miserable. And you and I know what that's like too. We've been there and done that, right? The satisfied life. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me this morning if you would please. And I want to ask you first of all today, have you given up living the lie? Have you given up the lie, Satan's lie, that if you just build your spiritual resume enough, 
You'll make it to God. You'll make it to heaven. I certainly hope you see that for the lie that it is. Righteousness is not something you and I can achieve on our own. Come to Christ this morning. If you need to lay down that spiritual resume and say, I I count it as rubbish. I see now it's rubbish, it's dung, it's garbage. And I lay it down and I come to you, Jesus. Do so today. Do you know somebody who's still trying to live that life? Pray for them. Share Christ with them. Help them to understand where true righteousness comes from. Christian, is it your desire? You want to know Him more and more. Lord, I just want to know You more and more. It's been, oh, it's been awesome to know You, to have You change my life, but I want to know You more. I want to know the power of your resurrection. God, I don't want to suffer. But even as I do in this world, I, I want to have that presence of Christ with me. Christian, is that your passion this morning? Father, I pray for people today even as even as Paul was burdened about the church at Philippi having these Judaizers coming in and and preaching a gospel that was no gospel at all Lord we see that today people say sure I'll I'll, t- I'll take Jesus but then they'll try to add all kinds of stuff to him And as Paul said to both the Galatians and the Romans, if you add works to grace, you cancel out grace. God, may we see today it's in Christ, in Christ alone. Lord, I do pray for that person right now. They need their eyes open. They need their heart open to this. Lord, show them through the power of your Spirit. It's Christ and Christ alone. May they come to Him and live in and through Him to His glory. In Jesus' name we pray.